Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mark's Medical Podcast. Today we are talking nausea and vomiting with our resident emergency specialist, Dr. Dinesh Palipana. Welcome, Dinesh. Hello, thanks for having me again. Thank you for coming in. Matt, how are you? I'm normal. You don't feel sick, nauseated? Not yet, not yet. Ready to spew anywhere? We've got new microphones though. Yeah, hopefully everyone's... (laughs) enjoying the sound and can finally hear us for once i should probably clarify too that i'm an emergency resident sorry emergency resident um oh you're a physician his uh qualifications and accolades change every every time we get in yeah he's a lawyer last week right order australia yeah that's it (laughs) we'll see what he comes up with next next time it'll be a knight (laughs) (laughs) a knight of the commonwealth <laughs> That's right. We said able semen last last time, didn't we? Um, so today we're talking nausea and vomiting. So we might just jump straight into it and start talking about some of the pathophysiology. Uh, I think what we should begin with is that we should highlight that there is a part of the brain in the brain stem. So what is it first? What vomiting is? You, t- you can tell everyone what vomiting is. Well, let's start with nausea. Okay. What's nausea? The feeling of wanting to vomit. I don't know. What is the technical definition? Uh, Sounds good to me. Dinesh? I guess it's an unpleasant feeling that yeah, makes you feel like you want to vomit or people generally describe it as feeling sick. Is What's the term? Reaching? Retching. Retching. Is that considered part of nausea or is that closer to part of vomiting? I think retching is more pre-vomiting. Okay. Yeah. People sort of it's sort of vomiting without the actual emesis, right? Without the vomit. Okay, so emesis is the technical term for vomiting. Yeah. And so vomiting is essentially the evacuation of your gastric contents. Yes. But possibly other things can come up alongside that, right? Yeah, and Dinesh will hopefully <laughs> give us a few examples as to uh, what may be coming up once you've emptied your gastric contents and yes. some other things. Like intestinal sense. contents. Yes, whether it's proximal or distal. Ooh, okay. And so vomiting is a coordinated interaction of uh, neural... Um, humoral, I guess, being in, in, yeah, the in the blood and muscles. Um, so it's a, a very um, coordinated event that requires you, which we can go through. Do we need to do the motor movements first or yeah, should I we talk about what what causes it? Let's talk about what causes it and then okay. we can say once it's been stimulated, how what happens physiologically to bring all those contents up and okay. then we can jump, jump into... So we, we know that we have a respiratory centre that dictates how we breathe and how long we breathe for and how quick we breathe and how deep and shallow we breathe. We know we have a cardiovascular center that dictates how fast our heart is and so forth. 
So do we have a similar center for vomiting? Yes, we have the vomiting center that sits in the medulla and that's the lowest portion of our brainstem. Okay. And that vomiting center will be having a discussion with a number of motor centers as well, which then send that efferent signal, which is a signal out and away from the brain, okay. uh, to coordinate a patterned contractile um, event that results in emesis. So the actual um, outcome of using all those muscles to somehow get all that evacuation out of your stomach. That's it. Okay, so there's a center in your medulla yeah. that dictates the efferent flow. That's right. Is that right? That's right. Is it so just the one? It's the one It's the one center, but okay. there's a conversation needs to be had between or can be had between uh, multiple signals coming into this center. And so these afferent signals mm-hmm. coming towards the vomit center uh, can be, for example, they can come from a, a, another part of the medulla called the chemoreceptive trigger zone. Have you heard of the chemoreceptive trigger zone? I usually refer to that as a CTZ. Really? Look at that. <laughs> you always... I like that. So that's, that's good. The so, CTZ, so why is it called that? It's called the chemoreceptive trigger zone because it's an area of the brain. It actually, like I said, sits at the medulla, but actually sits outside of the blood-brain barrier, which means it's very sensitive to what's floating around in the bloodstream and also what's floating around in the CSF. And so was it ever named that because of its sensitivity to chemotherapy or did that just come along? No, I just assumed because it's sensitive to chemicals floating okay. around in the bloodstream. And okay. so those types of chemicals include opiates, cannabinoids, noradrenaline, histamine, substance P, serotonin, dopamine, uh, acetylcholine. There's a whole bunch Some of chemicals. Various toxins. Toxins as well. Like what? Alcohol? Uh, we had this discussion about alcohol, okay? And so, you know, drink drink too much, you're going to spew. Now, <laughs> we were discussing what it is about the alcohol that makes you vomit. And so we said it could be potentially two things. Both could be wrong. Maybe both could be right. Maybe it's something else. That the alcohol quickly gets absorbed from the stomach and the uh, rest of the GRT, small intestines, into the bloodstream pretty quick. As, as ethanol. As ethanol. And then the liver metabolizes it to acetylaldehyde pretty quickly and some other byproducts, which that itself is probably what's stimulating the chemoreceptive trigger zone. Or... So the byproducts of alcohol? The byproducts of alcohol are potentially mm-hmm. doing it. Or maybe if you are ingesting... A significant amount of ethanol in a single go that's irritating the bowel and that direct irritation could be sending afferents to the not the chemoreceptive trigger zone but the vomiting center in the medulla what do you think via the vagus nerve via the vagus mm. do you reckon both one either i, w- I would imagine it's a combination of both but yeah, yeah. I, would think so. I haven't read up on it though no yeah. I don't, yeah i haven't read up on it either but that's that's my the other, hypothesis the other thing you could possibly add from a hormonal standpoint, is potentially pregnancy. So, yes. um, oh yeah. So HCG, which stands for I never can get human gonadotropin, which is the one that they use for the pregnancy test. But as that increases, presumably that then acts on the trigger zone. Okay. Mm. And so once this chemoreceptive trigger zone has been activated by any one or combination of these chemicals, yeah. it then sends a signal to the vomiting center right, right next door in the medulla and this stimulates like i said that patterned motor response that results in emesis vomiting okay what's what's some other ways that we can stimulate the uh, vomit center well you spoke about the um coming from the actual gut itself mm. so you could have in the git either a mechanic mechanio or mechanic mechano <laughs> mechano yeah mechano yeah mechano or chemical <laughs> So if the um, the GIT is probably stretched or distended excessively, that could be the mechano part. Mm-hmm. Or chemical, uh, if there is mucosal irritation or other kind of irritations. What about obstruction? Oh, I just said that. You said distension. Did well, you say from the obstruction. Oh, gotcha. So Sorry. if you're, let's say, um, your pyloric sphincter was to be narrowed, like through a stenosis. I guess this is more for a child, for an infant. But maybe it could could happen with an adult um so the stomach can't empty itself and will become distended maybe that would do you often see obstructions resulting in vomiting 
GRT obstruction? Yeah, yeah you, you can. can. Um, you can definitely see obstructions of various sorts mm. causing vomiting, and that is a really important cause that you need to look for. Um, we'll talk about causes a bit later yeah. on, but yeah. obstruction is definitely something because there's a mechanical barrier that's stopping yeah. contents from getting through. And so Matt said distension. Could that distension be caused due to maybe excessive gas? Could excessive gas maybe, whether it be if somebody is uh, is a celiac or whether they've got an uh, overproduction of microbiota that's breaking things down excessively, can you vomit because of excessive gas within the bowel? Is that something you've seen? No, I don't think so. There's so, a lot of you, know, you know, yeah. yeah, if there's actually a mechanical problem that's causing it, yeah. then yes. But if it's, um, so you can get distinction from mechanical blockages, but things like gas just tend to pass through. Yeah. The other, the other end. Yeah. Which we'll do another time when we do diarrhea. We're just going to do, oh, we'll do diarrhea. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and the, then I guess there's infection. So you've got your gastroenteritis, which ah, could be yeah. viral or bacterial, which probably is toxic or the or the mucosal irrit- exactly. irritant so you but say matt that so these some of these causes at the grt itself which is triggering us to vomit so it has to be sent to the brain right sent yes. to the medulla so how's that happening well that's via the afferents of the vagal nerve so okay. so that's a sensory visceral sensory sensation going back to the brain yeah. from the vagus nerve because the vagus does a lot of the that's a parasympathetic nerve. That's yeah. a tenth cranial nerve. Yes, that's right. Let's not forget the vestibular system too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the only other thing I was going to add to that, um, but that's a good next one, is that some of the cells in the, the GIT, um, when they are irritated or annoyed or have problems, they actually produce serotonin themselves, mm. which can then act on receptors on the vagus nerve. Well, there's an equivalent amount of serotonin produced in the gut as there is in the brain, yeah. if not more. Mm-hmm. And serotonin seems to be a really strong trigger for vomiting, at least at the chemoreceptive trigger zone. Yep. But like you said, to stimulate the vagus to send afferents up to the brain. So it can impact that, yeah. So, sorry, Dinesh, go into your vestibular system. Yes. So with the vestibular, this is going to be basically our center that uh, picks up motion and balance within the head, right? Um, so if... The vestibular system, so, okay, so us knowing where we are in our own space is proprioception. Our vestibular system is allowing us to sort of keep balance and have that motion of the head. And then we also have another afferent of sight coming in. And all these things sort of work together to allow us to probably not be unbalanced. Coordinate movement. Coordinate movement, basically. So if any one of these three things, and please tell me if there's something I've missed out, mismatches with the other then you can sort of get like a motion sickness sort of thing now is this a common something that you commonly see as causing nausea and vomit yeah so with uh people with vertigo oh, yeah. um yeah or people can also just get motion sickness yeah. um, but they would they present very common with in, vertigo in, no motion yeah. sickness Oh, because it's usually pretty self-limiting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Don't come into the ED too often. Exactly. I went on a date once. I went on this spinny ride at uh, at a park. Was this a presentation or was this you? This was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep going. I'm interested. And that was the end of the date. Yeah, very sexy. Yeah, I was just going to say, perfect. Yeah, exactly. But um, I mean, that's very self-limiting. That was so it. Just a teacup, teacup ride. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. So that's part of the motion sickness, but like you said, quite self-limiting. Um, oh, I'll, I'll just say something there, that um, that nerve or that neural impulse goes to its own little nuclei, which is the vestibular nuclei, which is also in the brainstem. Mm. But that has an impact with acetylcholine and histamine. So that might come into play a bit later when we talk about um, drugs that are used mm. for antimimics. Okay, so that's a good point. So all these things we've spoken about, so stimulating the chemoreceptive trigger zone, Afferent coming from the gut, primarily via the vagus nerve. We've got oh, we well, we haven't really spoken about. Did we talk about the involvement of perception in the cerebral cortex? No, we haven't. Okay, so but we can get to that as a final point. Well, just while we're finishing that point off, there's a area that goes into the vomiting center, which they also call the tractus solitaris, mm. and that's kind of like an analog 
um, to taste. Like at least lower vertebrates, they have really like say fish, mm. they have really big tractor solitaruses, which because they sense a lot of their body through taste, or they their skin tastes for them. So they have a huge taste center in their head, right. their brain. Ours is kind of sit in near the vomiting center yep. or coordinates with the vomiting center. So anything like the vagus going in, um, glossopharyngeal going in. So okay. glossopharyngeal, which is number nine, that yep. that will take. Um, taste with it and so will facial so yep. there's a bit of taste there and also the vestibular and that kind of all together goes into that tractus which is then... saying so if there's something that you taste going into the central nervous system that potentially your central nervous system may not agree with and think this may be toxic maybe or whatever it may be that mm. could then trigger the vomiting center yeah i'm not sure if it's through a perceptual taste that mm-hmm. you've um, been reinforced by yeah or if it's just a general chemical taste. Mm. But also in the glossopharyngeal vagus, you also also have the gag reflex. So that's oh, yeah. a mechanico stimulus in the back of your throat. Through the tractosolteris. I believe it does. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, talking to that point, I got food poisoning a couple of weeks ago. Uh, or at least I think it was. Maybe it was a gastro bug. But regardless, I vomited after I ate some capsicum. And I love capsicum, <laughs> right? So I ate a... So dog- you can't eat capsicum now? I, I have not been able to eat capsicum since. I wow. I love it. And I went back to it and I, f- I was so nauseated by the thought of eating capsicum, even though I love it. And I just went, wow. There's that, there's that whole cerebral cortex playing a role in perception, how that perception alters. Well, can talk to the medulla and say, hey, you may vomit if you keep going ahead with this. So that's the highest center. That's the highest center. Which so, comes through experience, maybe. Yeah. So it potentially can be altered. So like I was talking to you earlier, mm. um, with your daughter, um, she's probably too far now, but maybe a younger infant. If you gave them a, a plate of poo, they would probably... Father eat, of the year. They, they, they would probably, <laughs> potentially, <laughs> they potentially could eat it. Right. Potentially. Well, some infants wipe their poo over themselves, right? Yeah. Because they don't really have that association that it's yes. that horrible. Yeah. But if you were to give it to an adult, there's no way that they could possibly eat it, right? They would be vomiting. They'd be gagging to yeah. even get it close to them. Well, I think the not person putting... <laughs> not all adults? <laughs> you've, seen a, you've seen a couple of things? <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Okay. That's anyway, I'm glad you brought that, that up. Bad example. All right. So we've but got, you get the point. We get the point. So we've got the fact that we've got the chemoreceptor trigger zone picking up things in the blood and CSF that can stimulate vomiting. We've got our perception that can stimulate vomiting. We've got the vestibular system that can stimulate vomiting. And we've also got afferents coming from the gut that can stimulate vomiting. And did you, so did you finish all the, the cerebral ones? So you, Well, obviously you you've got smell. smell, sight, taste would be the predominant ones. And just thought, right? And just the thought of it, like the thought of eating capsicum. Well, that, but maybe also just emotional state. Would so you'd say that, right? Yeah. When exactly. Like if you're very anxious, or... exactly. If you're very anxious, I mean, there are psychogenic causes for nausea and vomiting. Mm-hmm. So if you're very anxious, or if you're, um, you know, there, there are certain emotional states that can certainly make you feel quite sick, or even make you vomit. Really. Wow. Yeah. I suppose there are people that vomit before they do a big presentation, for example. Exactly. Not me. I'm getting nervous. But whether that's that's to do with um, the presentation or maybe an autonomic, like an adrenaline rush. Well, we see noradrenaline stimulates the chemoreceptive trigger zone, so maybe they have a... Yeah, well, there are autonomic consequences of your emotions. Mm. So it it can certainly upset what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's basically... That's the patho. That's what's causing it. Yep. And then just quickly a motor... Uh, or um, how the muscles are coordinated to cause the vomit itself. So, a few steps here. So, the, the first thing that potentially will start is your thoracic, diaphragmatic, and abdominal muscles will start to contract. And that usually starts to contract against a closed glottis, which is your kind of top part of your airway. Yeah. That will build pressure up in particularly your intra-abdominal area. Mm-hmm. So, that's below the diaphragm. And then what happens... That could lead to the retching. Again, yeah. is that right term? Yeah, retching. <laughs> if you never said the I word retching I thought it was reaching. 
reaching, mm-hmm. that's when you got to grab something. <laughs> okay. Um, step two. So then the next thing to happen is your lower esophageal sphincter will start to relax in combination with your diaphragm, but the crural part. So the diaphragm has kind of muscular feet that kind of overlaps your blood vessels and goes into your kind of the bodies of your vertebra. Yes. So that would have to kind of relax. Um, this would allow food to start to go up into your esophagus. Uh, and then that with your... The, the diaphragm also plays a, a minor role in stopping reflux and regurgitation mm-hmm. of your gastric contents into the esophagus because obviously the esophagus is above the diaphragm and the stomach is below the diaphragm and it moves through that crurus. And so... Probably that that crur itself is probably that. That's some shape plays a physiological role mm. too. Well, the lower esophageal sphincter is a pretty pathetic sphincter. You know, yeah. So many people get... Esoph- not Case often, in point. Not often a term I use. Yeah, I get gastroesophageal reflux all the time. Uh, I've got a so pathetic lower esophageal sphincter. <laughs> all right. Um, Dinesh is just looking at him funny. <laughs> okay, and so then we get uh, those sphincters relaxing in combination of the intra-abdominal pressure increasing. Yeah. But then we have move into step three, which is a very coordinated event with your breathing muscles. So normally we the way that you breathe to allow um, the pressure in your thorax to change to allow breathing the air to go in mm. and then go back out um, would allow the pressures to go from up to down. But yeah. you have to reverse that in the vomiting. So the way that the inspiratory versus expiratory muscles are driving mm. um, allows the thorax, as so as the vomit's going through the esophagus, as it's going in your thorax, mm. The pressure changes in your lungs have to kind of push it up now. It permits regurgitation as yeah. opposed to, yeah. Whilst this is happening, your pharyngeal muscles, which would probably be more uh, vagal and glossopharyngeal driven, has to coordinate. You want it to go out, but you don't want it to be aspirated. So you don't want. So you want to go out your mouth, but not down your trachea. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. So you need to coordinate your upper pharyngeal muscles and your probably epiglottis in a way that. All the vomit will go flying out your mouth, which it does. Which it hopefully which it does. Did the other week, um, but it can even what, go behind you. I don't know how that's possible. But I vomit, <laughs> and it ends up being in places that my mouth wasn't even facing. I don't know how that happens. Okay, um, but whilst this pharyngeal motor control is occurring, it doesn't do well with the higher parts, so it will come out your nose. Mm. So you're kind of, um, I'm just trying to think of the term, the uvula and the the areas that prevent um, when you swallow stuff going up into your nose that I guess is turned off okay what's the last part Um, what about what's happening at the intestines you got reverse peristalsis happening well interestingly um, normally with peristalsis that's driven quite strongly by your enteric nervous system which is its own little brain if you want to use that right yeah so I think there's more neurons in your enteric system than your spinal cord yeah or approximately equivalent okay so it usually generates how you process your movement in your gut normally. But during this vomit process, it's totally overconsumed by your um, external nerves, so like your vagus. And so it will override it and shoot it backwards the other way. Cool. Um, is that enough? Do you I think, think it's... that's heaps. <laughs> okay. Before we all start retching. Re- reaching, yes. Reaching. All okay. right, so let's, let's... Let's bring in the expert now. All right, let's start talking clinical. So my first question to you, Dinesh. Yep. So we're working in a ED context yep. mostly today in this podcast. So we're doing nausea and vomiting in a context of ED. Yeah. Um, so if you had a patient present to you with nausea and vomiting, yep. let's just say that's all you know at this point. Yeah. What would you say the top five, top five, ten causes 20, of it? <laughs> thirty top thirty causes. Causes would be. If you're just gonna guess. Yeah. So if. You know, if you didn't know anything else about this patient, you just know that there's someone there with nausea and vomiting. There's still a very broad range of things that can cause it. Mm. Um, But some of the most common things might be gastroenteritis. Um, Like I ate a bad capsicum. Like a bad capsicum. (laughs) It probably wasn't a capsicum. I think it was I, hope not. I really hope not for you. I know, I love capsicum. And your Sorry. reputation. It's true of, of <laughs> being a big capsicum eater. <laughs> uh, um, so yes, uh, pregnancy would be another one. Unknown? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. Sometimes it could be. 
And is there anything classical in that presentation? Like, is it usually a morning? Well, it's is female. It... <laughs> yeah, okay, that's a good start. It could be morning, yeah. Okay. yeah. But it's not, I mean, it doesn't always have to be. Yeah. So young, and female. It's a recurring vomit. They're like, I just keep vomiting for some reason. I don't know why. It could be, yeah. yeah. Okay. Another one is, um, so you could get drug-induced, whether it be like prescription drugs mm -hmm. or other drugs. And is there any drug in particular that's a big candidate? Uh, so opiates okay. can cause vomiting, and that's because they alter your motility. Uh, yeah. um, but cannabis can also cause a very unique um, type of emesis. Yeah, so that's. So <laughs> that what do you mean by unique? Yeah. So you can get, um, and I remember this because one of one of the consultants in our emergency department, when I was in medical school, he taught us um, this. But essentially, if you you know if you have a uh, really high consumption of cannabis over a period of time, you can get cannabinoid-induced hyperemesis. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes, classically, these guys like to shower a lot. Ah. So if you um, get someone who's vomiting a lot, <laughs> and then you ask them, um, "Have you been showering a lot?" Yeah. And they say yes, and then they then you say, you know, do you smoke? Does it matter how they, um, what's the correct term? Because um, you could smoke it, but if they um, ingest it as well? Does, so whether it's edible or smoked. Yeah, yeah. Does that impact it? It doesn't really matter. I don't, I don't think it matters, but I think you need a fairly high amount of okay. cannabis. I'll think so, because usually cannabis is used to stop nausea, right? At least medicinally. It has... It, has been I don't know how strong the body of evidence is, okay. but it has been uh, trialed. Gotcha. At least it's been prescribed for it, whether it works or not. Well, I mean, it definitely helps you eat. If you if you if maybe you uh, need to get some nourishment, it may help. Okay. So um, yeah, so gastroenteritis, pregnancy, drugs, pharmaceutical and recreational. Um, on the same token, you could probably get. Things like vertigo as well. People feel quite nauseous. I get vertigo. Do you? Yeah, it's horrible. For any reason? It just comes on and goes? It just happens. Lay down sometimes and then you just start flipping around the room. And I mean, vertigo is also, I guess, there are causes for vertigo, yeah. which is probably a discussion for another day, but, yeah. you know, the vertiginous. I've had it a couple of times. I think I've got a floater in my ear. <laughs> like, um, so you can, they get, they, apparently that you get these like little stones that can, yeah. and they can then press on the hairs, which tell your vestibular system that you're doing something different. And there, there are certain maneuvers you yeah. can do to yeah, yeah, move yeah. it out of place. Um, Is that where you like grab the head and you like throw it to the side or something? Yeah. 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 Doesn't it diagnose and treat at the same time? Yeah. That's amazing. There's, um, so, yeah, vertigo and then migraines. People get mm. nausea ah. with migraines. Do we know the mechanism underlying that? I, don't um, I think migraines, so I think this is the additional ones. It's, I'm not sure if this is 100% correct, but I think migraines, increased intracranial pressure, like mm. things like meningitis, yeah. can present. So that could be maybe a, a trigeminal painful mm. input. So whether it's, it wouldn't be through the, the cortex way, no, but it would be. I mean, trigeminal usually um, well, is but, the sensory. But it could be because the cortex is cor neuronal changes within the cortex uh, definitively occur during migraine, and so that dysregulation leads to a whole bunch. Of, oh yeah, I can see what you mean. Mm. Uh, ion movements, uh, which may impact. I mean, for example, my sister who gets migraines, she will self-induce emesis. And she feels better as soon as she's had a bit of a chuck. My understanding is, why, my understanding is just a direct because the trigeminal nerve, which does pick up pain from the head, yeah. like meninges, blood vessels, all that, will go direct. Well, it kind of goes into the brainstem, and it goes from the midbrain all the way down to the medulla. Mm. So probably, and I think also tumors are in there as well. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, look the brain tumors. Yeah, so the. Really, the causes for nausea and vomiting are very broad. And I guess when you get isolated nausea and vomiting, those could be some of the 
things. But okay. um, all right, well let, let's so. let's just say now if a person does present with nausea and vomiting, what's yeah. what what are you going to do from that that point? Okay, so first of all, you look at the person, and you know, just from the bit of paper that you get before you go see them, mm-hmm. you'll know whether they're a male or a female. Yeah. You'll know whether they're young or old, or even infant. And that's already going to give you a set of things to start thinking about. So, so if we would it be best to then for us now to would you have let's just say an infant comes in? Yeah. Have you automatically now categorized a subset of causes? Like, do you mm. straight away go, all right, it's an infant, so it's probably going to be some sort of um, gastroenteritis yeah. or obstruction? Or like, Possibly, or, or pyloric stenosis, yeah. or you know, all sorts of things. But then, um, I guess among all the age groups, one of the things that can be quite common is gastroenteritis. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. probably, one of, I mean, hopefully, instant infants not smoking cannabis. Yes, yeah. or at least not too much. Yeah. <laughs> no, none at all. Obviously, don't condone <laughs> infants smoking cannabis no, or ingesting cannabis. We're responsible. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, so just knowing some of those uh, things before you even start mm. seeing a patient. And so, if we'll help you think about, does the do you always ask them? I'm sure you do. Yeah. How long have you been vomiting? Absolutely. Before? So, if it's you know an hours to a day, or even a couple of days, it's more acute, right? Yeah. But then there are people that have had it for weeks or months. Vomiting for weeks. They can have nausea and vomiting for weeks, and that can indicate you know, more functional gastrointestinal disorders like mm. gastroparesis. Yeah, so, what think, that, what that mean? so things aren't moving along as they should. Um, and that's the whole GIT? Yeah. And that I think that th- those type of things require endoscopies okay. and other studies to really identify what's okay. going on. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you can also get things like cyclical vomiting syndrome right. where, you know, you get it's exactly as it sounds. So it happens in cycles in a predictable fashion yeah. for a period of. Uh, so. So is that psychogenic? You know, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact. Mm. Um, so when you spoke about the ones that yeah. go in more with the dysfunction of the GIT, yeah. would that mean that the vomiting will come generally when you eat, or in a pattern of when they've ingested something? Potentially, but it's they they have chronic nausea and vomiting Um, but also you know some of the literature says that um, if it's straight after you eat um, it could be indicative of more psychogenic causes as well Mm. so it's something to think about yeah okay Um, but you know splitting it up into acute and chronic helps you deal with it and a lot of the time people that have chronic symptoms won't show up to the emergency department but they'll be under investigation you know from a, and sometimes no cause can be found in which case we'll put it down to something else yeah. but um so in the acute setting there's there are definitely a wide range of differentials that you need to keep in mind and like i said having the age range um gives you a bit of an idea of what to think of um so would you say yeah. that the majority – now, again, I did this last time, and it's unfair yeah. when yeah. I ask you to put a, a statistic on because yeah. you haven't looked at the stats for it, right? But I'm just getting you to guess. Yeah. Would the majority be gastroenteritis? You know, yeah, like you said, I don't, I don't know if there are any stats on it, yeah. and I don't know of any, but, you know, it's, it's quite common. Yeah. It's common across all the age ranges. It's common across, you know, if it's acute and isolated, it, it – could almost certainly be just that. And would you say that if it's if it's less than twenty four hours, mm-hmm. potentially you'd be thinking, okay, it's gastroenteritis hasn't run its course yet. But if it's three days, would you then start thinking, ah, oh, maybe not gastroenteritis? Or do you have gastroenteritis cases that last up to a week? Yeah, you, yeah. you can have gastroenteritis that can last up to seven to ten days, even. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Just knowing a bit more detail about them, you know, okay, I just got back from Indonesia. Gotcha. And, I drank well water. Yeah, <laughs> I dr- yeah, and I drank, I ate raw chicken yeah, gotcha. from a street vendor. As you do. As you, yeah, do. As you do. 
But then you need to keep your eye out for some red flag conditions as well. So what would what yeah. would that be? So the important things to think about. Is this, are we just talking generally now? Generally, okay. yeah. So asking about the vomit itself, you know, is important. So did you have any blood or particularly if it's, um, um, if it's like coffee ground type. So what would that mean if it's coffee ground? So it could mean that they have an upper GI bleed. So what is it about the upper GI bleed manifesting as coffee grounds in in the vomit? Is that just because it's dried blood? Digested blood. Digested blood. It's okay. So it's black and looks like coffee grounds. Yeah, it's dark. Dark. Yeah. Um, And is that... Do you have a different concern if it's fresh blood compared to the... So if they've got fresh blood, I mean, if it's profuse fresh blood and mm. they're sort of hemodynamically unstable, okay. you might be worried that there's a significant tear yeah. or a significant um, disruption to the mucosa. But if it's just you know a streak of blood here and there, mm. then it's probably just something trivial that's going to resolve itself. Like maybe a tear or something from the from the vomiting. Yeah, like a Mallory Weiss tear is what it's called. Okay, and is that an esophageal? Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, Would you get so, more profuse bleeding if it's something like an ulcer, a gastric ulcer? Is that is that something you see? You don't really get vomiting with gastric ulcers. Um, potentially, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, th- those kind of questions are really important to ask. Yes. So, with um, an upper GI bleed, you might also get melina, which is dark mm. stools. Oh, okay. As well. So, what dis- what's the discerns between? Let's say you have a, an upper GI bleed. My understanding was. There's kind of a ligament, I think it's called a ligament of treads, which if the, I can never get this right, but if the bleed is above that, so proximal to that, mm-hmm. it will be melina, yeah. but if it's distal to that, it will become a frank blood stool. But if you, so that's, that point is, let's say, in the midway of the duodenum, so that's the first part of the small, <coughs> small intestine. But what would dictate... It go a bleed at let's say in the duodenum to go out as poo, versus what going out as vomit. Does it have to be for a vomit? Does it have to have an obstruction? Oh well, you could get both. Is that right? Yeah, I mean you could get both. You could you could have, but I mean, um, but if it, if it's vomit, it's usually more proximal. You would imagine if you're getting coffee ground vomits, it'll, it'll it stomach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, but, so you. You, but if it's you know, a lot of people just have melina. Okay. Um, yeah. Right, and so if a question with the blood would be, if, uh, you know, what your stool's like potentially. Yeah. That's so true. it's an associated question that you might ask. Have you had melina as well? And so if you were to have uh, an obstruction, let's say in your small bowel, there is that potential that you can vomit out a fecal kind of. Yeah, we can get like gastrocolic fistulas where you're, uh, yeah. So, because we spoke about, remember I said my friend had, not him, but. Say he, the story, yeah. He just had a, there was a, a, a guy. Don't say it dismissively, it's, it's insane. Okay, so this guy, um, when he was, would drink an alcohol at the bar, he would um, belch and. <laughs> Everyone would leave the room. <laughs> it was that bad, and so he wanted to investigate that. And so he went to a, a gastroenterologist who did an endoscopy and found that he had a stomach ulcer, but it burnt through the wall, and it went because one of the um, intestines that kind of run just near the stomach is the transverse colon, and just made a fistula straight into the transverse colon. That's pretty significant. So there yeah. was a fistula. Yeah. So communication between the the large bowel and the stomach. So he's he burping was, up his poo. No, he's just farting out his mouth. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> farting out his mouth. How's that? That's lucky though that it didn't go into the peritoneum. Or it didn't hit a blood vessel and yeah, bleed out. I guess you know, not get septic and. I mean, you can get fissures between all sorts of stuff. True. If you. But well, um. For... So yeah. Identifying the causes and making sure that there's, there are no red flag things yeah. are important. And you're going to be kind of guided by the patient's demographics and their background and history. So even things like a myocardial infarction can mm. cause nausea. A stroke 
could cause. And is this because of chemicals that are released from the damaged tissue? Or do we not really know? From a myocardial infarction, I would think that it's probably more the autonomic okay. dysfunction that would cause it. Yeah. Uh, so you could have maybe a vagal afferent. Also the pain, right? Pain, pain causes nausea. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe multiple, but... It's unlikely to just get isolated, nausea and vomiting, you know, but it, it's probably going to be associated with chest pain or something yeah. else. Um, stroke, you know, um, particularly if it's affecting the brainstem. Yeah. Um, what about, I mean, this kind of hybridizes our last discussion when you did abdominal pain. But if a person's got nausea and vomiting and then a distinct um, pain location, yeah. Um, can that guide you? Like, so if, let's say you had yeah. it in a region that you th think, oh, maybe that could be now a gallbladder or a, yeah. a stone. Like if it's right upper quadrant mm -hmm. or um, epigastric, you know, pancreatitis, for example, mm -hmm. if they got appendicitis-like pain, so umbilical, -like that's migrating down to the yeah, right mm -hmm. iliac fossa, then it, it could be appendicitis yeah. for sure. So the, there's such a vast range of differentials. Mm. for appendicitis and taking a thorough history of the actual complaint so time course associated symptoms all that kind of stuff is really important but then also getting a medical history mm. as yeah. well to see you know i mean are you on chemotherapy for example yes. do you have any other do you even have your gallbladder yeah um yeah. sometimes so all those kind of things are really important then a social history is very important so you know is this person smoking weed every single day and mm. or has has a pattern of change to their weed do they abuse opioids are they a big drinker because mm. that can be a cause of pancreatitis yeah um so even asking about their employment because sometimes it can give you hints to what whether they're exposed to certain toxins oh, okay. um so all these things um are really important if you're getting an idea so how often would you say at the end of all this so obviously so, so you'd say that vomiting is is a is a sign of probably something else. Yeah. How often do you get just idiopathic nausea and vomiting, unknown origin? Yeah. So you, you can get it. Um, a lot of the time, nausea and vomiting comes in, you know, like I said, associated with something. Mm. So it could be the manifestation of gastroenteritis, or it could be associated with other things mm. like a myocardial infarction, but idiopathic like nausea and vomiting without any other cause found i think it's reasonably rare yeah. and it probably is, gets more seen in the chronic setting that's right with um different types of specialists so does nausea and vomiting usually only last the duration of the disease or disorder mm -hmm. or could you because you know how you can sort of get some lasting effects of certain diseases and disorders do, do people ever they had gastroenteritis or they had something but they're still vomiting or nauseated is that something that happens or it does it usually just last the duration of the disease usually yeah okay yeah. makes sense Should we, just one last yeah what kind we'll talk of about treatment what physical examinations would you do yeah. Like what common physical exams might you so, run? Again, it's going to be... Um, again, depending on all yeah. the other things you've so done. So one of the things that you want to assess from a general perspective is, so if this person's been vomiting a lot, mm. you need to know whether their hydration state's good. Okay. So things like uh, whether their mucous membranes are dry, whether they're tachycardic, whether they have low blood pressure, or whether they get a postural blood pressure drop capillary refill so all those kind of things are imp important to ascertain this person's volume state mm -hmm. so that's one thing that you probably want to check so is it very easy to get dehydrated from excessive vomiting um it, it can be yeah certainly because and it's i guess the more correct terms volume depletion volume depletion well. so um yes because not only are they expelling things, but they're not intaking yes. much. So it's they can certainly get dehydrated. So you're worried more about the you're worried more about the expulsion of the water or the expulsion of the ions within the the electrolyte disturbances yes. are the other thing that yeah. you need to be careful of. So just just with the physical exam though, um, you're guided by your history, you know, because yeah. you can't. 
examine everything because so, so a neurological exam will take time and abdominal exam will take time and so that's why history is really important history is really the key to and if you take a good history 70 to 80 percent of the time you're going to know where to look okay. the physical exam confirms it and then your investigations confirm that yeah um and sorry where, where, where are we up to before then um what was i saying i was talking about uh well we're about to move on to treatment i just had one question it was yeah. going back somewhat it's going around the enteritis and food poisoning yeah uh and and the time obviously with for viral it's much harder to know when you were infected to to start it going off but in terms of say bacteria in the food or food poisoning what from your experience was is the shortest duration from a ingestion of a, a bad food into a vomit like can it be as short as a few minutes or does it take the bacteria to colonize I think it can be pretty short, actually. And again, I went on a date once. <laughs> <laughs> you vomit a lot on dates. <laughs> we, ate some, we ate some sushi. Uh, and I pretty much uh, hid in this girl's bathroom wow. and vomited uh, about an hour or two later Whoa. for ages. That must have been so. some pretty contaminated sushi. That was pretty sick. I've been yeah. told by a microbiologist, don't ever eat rice <laughs> that's, that's for sale full they, stop or? full stop they, they just said don't eat rice and sushi don't eat cold rice basically they said because they said bacteria loves cold rice they I just love it yeah. Yeah, yeah that's it perfect but, food um, source form I don't think it has to be that long really and I, I you probably don't know this because it's probably more from microbiologist but is it so if you eat, eat contaminated food is it the bacteria or is it potentially They've got their toxics yeah. in there as well. Yeah, I think a lot of the time it's actually the toxins yeah. that they produce. So you could almost kill the bacteria, but if they've released their exotoxins or whatever, that's probably what's happening. Yeah. Is that your body is killing off the bacteria that probably shouldn't be there? And then you're releasing to the exotoxins. Yeah, the endo or exotoxins, maybe not endotoxins, but yeah. Okay. Or the polysaccharides that are sitting on the outside of the bacteria. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we've done. Um, the main potential causes and some of the way you would further diagnose. Yeah. Um, you started to talk about, so you said that your main concerns of ongoing vomit, vomiting is going to be rolling depletion mm. and uh, electrolyte disturbances. Yeah. What about with pH if someone's vomiting a lot? Because we know that the, mm. the pH of the stomach is very acidic. Yeah. So if you vomit a lot, can you lose a lot of that acid? Yeah, you can get um, alkalosis you can also get you know um, you, you could also be vomiting because of an acidosis that you have as well or alkalosis okay so, so like be, yeah so like a diabetes. DKA oh, okay. yeah actually DKA is probably one of the other ones that could potentially just present with nausea and vomiting yeah. as well yeah and so and would so, the and the nausea and vomiting would be caused by the excessive hydrogen ions stimulating Trigger zone. Trigger zone? That's it. Yeah. Or the ketones? Or the ketones? Maybe the ketones. Maybe. I'm not exactly sure about yeah. the trigger zone. But well, the ketones are used as an energy source, so presumably... Ketones get turned back very quickly into glucose, though, once it enters the brain. So maybe not ketones. Because, of the ke because ketones is an energy source, you wouldn't think that it would yeah. be... But the hydrogen ions produced yeah. as a byproduct of ketone yeah, production, yeah, yeah. potentially. Yeah. Makes sense. It might actually be because of the gastroparesis that you get as well from them. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I yeah. didn't realize that. Yeah. So why? So why are the development get, of a gastroparesis? You can, you know? So diabe diabetics can get gastroparesis. Yeah. Um, and again, I can't honestly remember the pathophysiology. So this is so. where the, the you, you got diminished gastric emptying, right? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, I just would assume yeah. it's probably just a overall imbalance happening in the body, just slowing things down. No, you can end up. Wow. But. The yeah, the main concerns really are um, the volume depletion yeah. that you want to replace. Okay, ideally, sorry, you keep going. Ideally, orally, but otherwise, if not intravenously. Uh, that was going to be my question. Yeah. So, is it w just a normal saline, or are you going to put them on something with, like saline with something else in it? 
It's usually just normal saline. Okay. Yeah. Um, when do you determine that you're going to put them on a drip or you're just going to tell them to orally rehydrate? You, so a lot of the time, it depends on a few things. It depends how volume depleted they are. So you can make an assessment of you know how volume depleted they are. The second thing is how if they can actually get any oral intake down. Gotcha. So, you know, sometimes they're just vomiting so much that they can't actually get anything down, in which case you're not, you know, you're not going to do that. But in the kids' ED, for example, we've got a fridge full of icy calls yeah. just to see if, you know. Oh, they'll keep those down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and especially in kids, kids are not some, they're not, you don't want to traumatize them by putting intravenous cannulas in them too much. So it's in children, you want to ideally really try to orally rehydrate them first. Mm. Even in adults, you know, it's, it's ideal. But if you find that they're too volume depleted and you need to replace some volume mm. and you can't do it orally, then um, intravenous fluids. So you can use um, saline. Some people like to use Hartman's. There's no real evidence at the moment between one or the other, yeah. um, except for in sepsis. So is Hartman's sailing with glucose? Hartman's has so Hartman's is uh, it's got it's a um, it's got different electrolytes yeah. and it's said to be more physiologically close. Gotcha. Has it got lactate in it as well? Yeah. Okay. From so, memory. Yeah. So that's so one part of the treatment if dehydrated or volume depleted yeah. would be oral rehydration or IV. What about when it comes to pharmacological management of the nausea and vomiting? Yeah. Um, sorry, one other thing I should say is volume depletion plus electrolyte gotcha. replacement as well. So one of the um, more serious things that has significant consequences is uh, potassium. Yeah. Um, so you want to correct that. Yeah. And if you, if you, if, because obviously I think Hydrogen ions and potassium ions love to exchange with one another. And if you're depleting yourself of hydrogen ions through vomiting, this may alter where whether the potassium sits intracellularly or extracellularly. And so this could also have an effect potentially. Yeah, because pota- potassium derangement, you know, it has significant implications for your cardiac. So do you do bloods before you do electrolyte rehydration? Um, oh yeah, you should. Yeah. So if you're, I mean, if you're going to replace something like potassium, mm-hmm. you should know where it's at. Yeah. And it's pretty easy these days. Um, you can do a venous blood gas, which sort of at, at the point of care, you have a result in 30 seconds. Wow. Really? So, you know, you have a decent idea yeah. and then you send bloods off to the proper lab anyway. Mm. Um, but you have a decent idea of, and plus if, if that's also happening, you want to do an ECG just to make sure there are no cardiac so when you do a venous blood gas and you determine yeah. the potassium, yeah, um, this is something that I've always wondered about. Obviously, potassium predominantly sits intracellularly. Extracellular, yeah. what, 3.5 millimoles mm-hmm. per liter, 4 millimoles per liter, so, or milliequivalents per liter. If that number is higher, how do you know that it's just the potassium hasn't jumped out of the cell and it's sitting in the extracellular fluid, or whether there's a a problem with over-ingestion or a problem with excretion of potassium, or if the potassium is low in the extracellular fluid, how do you know that? I mean, my question is, how do you know what the overall amount of potassium is within the body? Because that's what's important, right? The overall potassium, because you could do something that alters the shuttling across the cell of the you potassium. Could, yeah. So you, you could do something like that. I mean, a good example is um, when you give salbutamol, for example, you know, you can hide it, yeah. but then it's going to come creep back out. Um, so, but what, what you treat is actually the number that you see on the VBG okay. or the biochemistry panel so or whatever you're using. Chuck some yeah. potassium in. Yeah. Okay. But you need, I mean, it depends on the patient's history, what comorbidities they have, what medications they're on. So then you get a... Yeah, I mean, then you get a fair idea of what is causing this. Like, if they're in DKA, it's yeah. going to be a completely different mm. thing. Yeah. If they've just had a lot of um, salbutamol for various reasons, mm. it's another thing. So, 
it depends on their state and then you can sort of predict what's going to happen but what you measure is you know what what you uh what you've measured on the bloods is what you manage sure. yeah. all right so we've got water we've got electrolytes now when it comes to the pharmacological intervention so whether it be for the nausea or the vomiting yeah what do you do do you have because we stated that there's a number of chemicals that can stimulate vomiting and nausea um, and you've also got the afferents coming from the gut and you've also got perception and you've also got the vestibular system. How do you know which one you need to treat? Because I assume there's different receptors for each different type. Do you, Is there a, a, a treat-all drug that you use or do you have to try and determine where this is coming from? Yeah, so, I mean, treating the cause is important because that's what's going to fix it, right? Yeah. So treating the cause is important, but um, in the emergency department, so in the emergency setting, there's very little evidence for one drug over the other versus placebo. In fact, there's yeah, almost next to no good evidence. And so these drugs are predominantly the the antidopaminergics, antiserotonin, or, or dopamine antagonists and, and serotonin antagonists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Histamine antagonists. Yeah. So the most commonly used, I guess the two most commonly used ones in practice are metoclopramide yep. or ondansetron. Yeah. So ondansetron is a 5-HT3 mm-hmm. antagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, serotonin. serotonin is a yeah. receptor. Yeah. Yeah. Metoclopramide is um, dopamine. It's a prokinetic as well. Okay. So what does that mean? A dopamine oh, or prokinetic, so it uh, pushes things along the gut. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, like, does that mean diarrhea is a common consequence of taking this, or just it can be? Mm. Um, I think it's a part of. It make you think it would make them vomit even more if the if it's prokinetic. I think it well, it pushes things along in the right it's, direction, yeah. <laughs> not in the opposite direction. So what about Parkinson's patients, right? So if dopamine is a stimulator yeah. for the vomiting center and they take uh, dopamine precursors as levodopa, which turns to dopamine, would a mismanagement of that or even just normal management of a Parkinson's patient result in vomiting? Do you get that? Yeah, and actually with some of these drugs, especially, you know, metoclopramide in particular, you've got to be really careful of um, side effects like that so you can get all these movement um, like dyskinesias. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, you need to be very, very careful. Yeah. How common is that? I haven't seen it, but it's it's a known side effect. Okay. Like it, it does happen, yeah. and and you need to be mindful of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, do you so. ever have people coming in with um, who take serotonin agonists and are vomiting because of the medication that are serotonin agonists? So like, you know, antidepressants, for example, are selective yep. serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which yep. include... So so that increases the amount of serotonin available at the synapse. Mm-hmm. So that could potentially do it? Potentially. It could yeah. potentially make you a bit nauseous, maybe. Um, yeah, I personally haven't really seen... My assumption is it would be managed. I mean, they would know what's causing their vomiting because I assume they know it's a sign of... And it might be managed in the GP setting yeah. as well. A bit more. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're saying that the current meds being dopamine antagonists, serotonin antagonists, don't necessarily, there's not enough evidence to suggest that they work better than one another or even placebo in the emergency setting. So yeah. what do you do to, to cork the... Uh, <laughs> to cork the... Uh, cork thing. the emesis. Yeah. Um, one, one drug that does have some evidence for efficacy in that setting is droperidol okay so droperidol is another um anti-dopaminergic yep. drug mm-hmm. um and uh actually in very uh, in certain doses it's used to sedate people who might be agitated uh-huh. as well yeah i but, think um, i may have taken something very similar to that by accident when i went on a boat for motion sickness I, well, I took. I, no, I, I on purpose. I, oh, well, I, I took it on purpose, but I took two as opposed to one, and I was knocked out for the four-hour no, boat trip. No, I was. I felt like when people were talking to me that they were coming from a distance. They felt like they were a mile away. I was still vomiting because I don't think it 
made any difference to my motion sickness. I was just vomiting in this semi-comatose state. It was a horrible four hours. It was, I'll never hop on a boat ever again. That's how bad it was. I think I think that's also with the, some of the antihistamines that they use for um, vomiting. They have a sedation effect mm. that's quite strong. But I, I guess the bottom line is, you know, in the emergency setting, a lot of these things have poor evidence. Mm. Um, another another classic drug is glucocorticoids. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, dexamethasone, for example. Yeah, yeah. So that's a systemic anti-inflammatory, right? That's a pretty strong anti-inflammatory steroid. Yeah. So the mechanism is not really clear. Mm. Um, and it, it's thought that it might be due to its anti-inflammatory effects. So sort of like blunting those chemicals, because a lot of the pro-inflammatory chemicals seem to overlap with the chemicals that stimulate the chemoreceptive trigger zone. So maybe blunting them or stopping them from being transcribed what? or translated. You think it take a while, though? No, steroids work. So, you know, steroid yeah. jumps into the cell, alters yeah. transcription, translation. Of, it actually happens super quick. Like, it right. can happen within tw- 20 to 30 minutes, it can alter translation. Okay. Right. Yeah. Hmm. With, um, yeah. I, I, actually, so on Dancitron and, say, dexamethasone, have a lot, bit more evidence in post-operative nausea and vomiting okay. and chemotherapy settings. So is the post-operative nausea and vomiting, is that due to the... Uh, anesthetic? Yeah, that's yeah. thought. Okay. Yeah. I must have, maybe if it was a GI surgery, it probably would have peritoneal irritation and inflammation. For the anesthetic. So it's yeah. more so having their effects blocking the anesthetic as opposed to anything else. But they also oh. give, like, the, if you're going to take a strong opioid, then they usually give yeah. metoclopramide as well. Yeah, so, you know, morphine, and yeah. any of those give things. A, like a prophylactic. Yeah. Because they're uh, they, you know, slow down gastric motility. Mm. So that that's um, with opiates, you might get that as well. Yeah, I think it also sensitizes the um, vestibular system opioids. So, and they directly stimulate the chemoreceptive trigger zone. Mm-hmm. Does a three pronged attack from morphine. <laughs> it stops your bowel from moving around, and then it stimulates the chemoreceptive trigger zone and sensitizes your vestibular system. Yeah. There you go. But really, un- until some some of the causes are just you know uh, self limiting, like yeah. gastroenteritis. Yeah. So they're going to. This is what I had. I didn't come yeah. and see you in ED. I was thinking about it, but it stopped within twelve hours. Yeah. Well, people. You know. I mean. Yeah. It, it, so. Until you really fix the cause, that's probably the best mm. treatment in the emergency setting, or just let it run its course. Yeah. So um, Dinesh has given up dates. <laughs> so he doesn't vomit yeah, anymore. Yeah, he's yeah, got right, dates. That's what put me off the whole thing. Yeah, dates yeah. maybe vomit. <laughs> maybe it is a uh, psychogenic. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wasn't the sushi at all. Wasn't the sushi at it was all. Just the nerves of being on a date. <laughs> wasn't the teacups either. <laughs> so, well, look, um, I think we've. Is there anything else you'd like to add? So we we've spoken about the pathophysiology. We've spoken yes. about you know presentation we've spoken about diagnosis we've spoken about treatment is there anything else you'd like to add would you say it's a um would you say it's like one of the top presentations um it's it's common yeah it's definitely common um so we did we did um abdominal pain which was apparently number one it's very common yeah so would be numbers (laughs) (laughs) the most common things you deal with really are chest pain abdominal pain okay you know, people do present with nausea and vomiting, particularly pregnant women who mm-hmm. have intractable nausea and vomiting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have people with gastroenteritis. Um, you have people, you know, so it, it can be because it's very uncomfortable as mm. well. So it's horrible. And for me, I pass out. Yeah, he gets I, syncope from it. I get um, razor bagels. Oh, jeez. <laughs> How good's that? I just wake up on the ground. So <laughs> if it was you on the date, They'll be finding you covered in your own spew in the yeah. toilet, unconscious. Uh, better than getting poo faints. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. <laughs> you don't get poo faints, do you, Matty? No, not that. Not yet. Luckily, <laughs> do you get it when you have diarrhea? No, I ended up in uh, hospital in Singapore after I visited India, um, and the the specialist came around and goes, "Look, you could have anything. You just come back from India." He goes, "I had a journalist um, who was in this ward." last week and I think 
he said that she had three things at once. Oh. She had a bacteria, a virus, and Parasite. a protozoa. Ugh. Like a uh, Guardia or something. Well, at least you could... Antibiotics will help two of them. <laughs> and then time will help the third, I suppose. But mine was a virus. Mm. So what do you do? Nothing. He was just saline. It's just Can supportive. you do much with the virus? Just let it run its it's course, just supportive. Right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Buscapane was the best one for me because I had a lot of kind of cramping. Yes. Mm. So you needed to but let that really, go. I didn't really vomit, but the diarrhea was chronic. Which I'll leave for the, when we cover that. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to finish a podcast. Matt had chronic diarrhea. All right, well, Dinesh, thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Again, guys. It's so fun helpful. as always. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's, um, I think we covered vomiting and nausea pretty well. And um, Dinesh's dates. Yes, that's dates. right. Yeah. We'll talk about my, my uh, dating history in the next episode. <laughs> well, you're a dad now. So that's no true, so it never <laughs> yeah. existed. So, <laughs> so um. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dinesh. Thanks, Maddie. Thank you. And uh, that was Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. We'll see you all soon.